Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast, a Canadian real estate podcast that shows you how to pay off your mortgage sooner and live well while doing it. Now, here's your host, Sean Cooper. Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. I'm Sean Cooper, and it's great to be back for another episode. On today's show, I'll be talking to Leslie Ann Scorgi. Leslie Ann is a best-selling author, renowned professional speaker, educator, and popular columnist and television personality. She owns and operates MeVest.ca, a money school for Canadians offering one-on-one money coaching and employer programs. In addition to being a guest on Oprah, Leslie Ann has made numerous television appearances including CBC, Breakfast Television, The Social, Montel Williams, and MTV Live. Her financial articles have appeared in publications such as Metro News, Toronto Star, Men's Health Magazine, The Globe and Mail, and Calgary Herald. Leslie Ann has been a spokesperson for government savings bonds and BMO Bank of Montreal. Leslie Ann has a BCom from University of Alberta and an MBA from Queen's University. In 2001, Leslie Ann won Avenue's Top 40 Under 40 Award and WXN's Top 100 Most Powerful Women in Canada. In my interview with Leslie Ann, we discuss her life-changing TV appearance on the Oprah Winfrey show, buying a property at a young age, and how to get your side hustle on. Without further ado, here's my interview with Leslie Ann Scorgi. Hi, Leslie Ann. How are you doing today? I'm good, Sean. You? Pretty good. Thanks. It's so wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Great. So, you haven't always been the personal finance expert that you are today. Can you tell us about how you learned about money and saving growing up? Um, you're right. I definitely didn't know much about money, especially when I was younger. Grew up in a home where uh, financial literacy was not uh, very prevalent. However, one thing that my parents often did was talk about the errors of their financial ways and gave us um, kids a lot of guidance on what not to do. And also during that time, because we had so little, both my parents were in school, um, my parents were very clear that I would be on the hook for having to pay for my upcoming um, university education. And so that prompted me to get my first job, and uh, which was at, actually at the public library. And then while I was at the library, that's really where some of my financial interests started to unfold. I was reading books by Jeffrey Archer, magazines like Forbes and they were all obviously free from the library and it was the beginning of the inspiration to start saving and I started to channel all of my earnings um, into you know savings bonds and mutual funds and um, you know I started a you know, babysitter's club and 
before I knew it, I actually had uh, quite a little nest egg, uh, which was sufficient to help me put myself through school. But um, in the long run, it set the foundation for all of the financial behaviors that I now promote and talk about today with my clients and also my audiences. Um, you know, obviously starting early really helped. But on top of that, just generally, you know, helping to spark general motivation amongst others to, uh, to save. Great. Now, you appeared on Oprah when you were only uh, 17 years old. Tell us about the experience and how it changed your life. During that time that I spoke of when I was working at the library, and I mentioned I had amassed quite a nest egg, I had a really great teacher outside, obviously, of the library, but at my school, and she decided to teach a class on how uh, investing worked. And she asked for any volunteers to help her with that. And I volunteered to help her with that. And it became really clear very quickly that I knew a lot about investing my money. I knew a lot about how to save. And so she and I kind of formed this fun, you know, bond over money. And she was a real um, influential person pretty early in my teenage years. Anyways, it just so happened that the local newspaper phoned my high school uh, around the same time asking if there were any, I'm using floaty quotes, mark, quotation marks right now, like odd or interesting students um, that they could profile. And so my teacher, Ms. Laviniak, actually, she recommended that they profile me. And so they, it made, you know, made time to do an interview and uh, get some pictures. And that story was entitled Wiz Kid, all about how saving early and often could be quite uh, influential for a young person. And uh, it got picked up on the newswire nationally, and then it uh, got picked up in the U.S. and found by the producers of The Oprah Winfrey Show. So I met Oprah um, shortly thereafter on a program uh, that she hosted called Ordinary People, Extraordinary Wealth. And from that moment on, things did change for me. That uh, exposure was uh, unexpected. Uh, it was a little bit of luck, a little bit of timing, and lots of hard work. But it opened up doors to writing my first book, um, starting my business, and uh, becoming a media personality in Canada on finance. That's such a, a fascinating story, and I know, know that we've spoken about this before, but didn't you think that it wasn't originally the producer of Oprah when you got that phone call? Yeah, actually, when they phoned, I hung up on them the first time because I thought it was a joke. Um, anyways, they phoned back and they said a little bit more detail about who they were and why they were calling, and it all made sense. Um, but at first, I was really taken aback. I wasn't expecting that phone call. Yeah, definitely. I don't think uh, anyone would really expect that phone call. So mm -hmm. great. So if you weren't busy enough at 17 years old, then you bought your first house uh, when you were 21 years old. Would encourage you to buy a property at such a young age? I think I did a lot of things earlier than most, and including, you know, right after I got back from the Oprah show, I went up to university um, and I took my first degree at the University of Alberta and it was a business degree. 
Um, but I was 17 when I started and I was 21 when I graduated. And from all of the reading I had done um, and financial literacy to bring my own experiences into, I guess, like a more refined way of thinking, I decided that right after university, like directly after university, I was going to take advantage of a bit of a slumping house market in Calgary. And so I bought my first home when I was 21 with the savings that I had accumulated um, while I was working part-time, actually three jobs part-time while I was putting myself through university. And I had just enough for the down payment and closing costs on, on my first home. But I was really smart about it because I had started reading and learning about real estate investing. I had chose a home that was pretty well located to transit and also had three bedrooms and three bathrooms. Uh, so if you can guess what's, what's next, I rented out the other two bedrooms and two bathrooms to two tenants and ha had them help me pay, uh, pay for the mortgage. It was really only because I had those tenants that I was able to afford to own at such a young age. I think for myself, uh, I was then really lucky to have bought one I did because I benefited from really strong economy that took Alberta by the storm shortly thereafter. Um, and as you probably are familiar with, Alberta's economy goes up and down like a yo-yo, depending on oil and gas prices. But um, I, was, I was very fortunate to have bought one I did um, because I was uh, like, a, I benefited hugely from the peak in the market shortly thereafter. And then of course, you know, it, it you know, bobbed up and down uh, for many years thereafter. Great. And um, you mentioned that you were a first time landlord. How did you find that experience? And are, are there any tips that you could offer for someone looking into becoming a landlord as well? I think my biggest learning was to follow my instincts. I had uh, very good luck with most of my tenants. In fact, today I can honestly say I've had very good luck with most of my tenants because I'm still a landlord today. However, I have had some very strange experiences where intuitively I knew that I probably shouldn't be renting my property to someone but they looked great on paper. And I think my biggest learning from that is to follow my instinct because in the instances where I didn't follow my instincts, there were always challenges that came from that. So obviously like you learn a lot about uh, the technical elements of becoming the landlord, including uh, which I am a huge proponent of um, as a landlord, you should know the, residential tenancy act if if you're doing residential like the back of your hand and most landlords don't take the time to understand what that is they don't take the time to understand their insurance and let me tell you if you get caught on the wrong side of either of those uh, it can be like very financially damaging if not catastrophic so uh, again my two tips would be know the landlord tenancy acts um, or the residential tenancy act and then um, know your insurance very very well and follow your instincts 
Now that's some great advice. Thanks so much for sharing it. So some millennials are choosing to rent instead of buy. They're discouraged by the high home prices in big cities like Toronto and Vancouver. Why shouldn't young folks give up on the dream of home ownership? And why is real estate still a, a good long-term investment? So long-term, it often does make sense to own because eventually you'll pay off the home that you live in and you won't have those mortgage payments anymore. Whereas if you continue to rent for, let's say, 35 or 40 years, those payments never go away. So there's generally long-term a benefit to owning and paying off your home. I think the challenge for young people right now in expensive cities is that when you're buying, it's so expensive that it can often make more financial sense, at least for the early parts of their you know, independent living to rent, because theoretically, uh, they would be paying less in rent than they would to manage and pay for a property that they own. The theory, though, is that if you're paying rent and saving money by doing so, that you would then take those savings and invest them um, in the long term into you know, investments that would grow. So where I think that, that theory falls off, though, is when young people rent and they spend all their savings on travel or whatnot, and they don't build up their, their savings. I think there are a variety of ways to own. I, I don't think owning is a bad thing, especially in an expensive city, but I do think being mindful of what you can afford is. Um, and so I would say if you're going to buy, buy well in a really great location and make sure that that property has the ability to sell again or be hot in the resale market so that you don't want to be stuck with like a bad property investment. The other thing is if you're buying, buy with the intent that maybe you'd be able to lease it out or rent it out um, long term or a component of it like a basement suite or a room in the house or whatnot. Great. So everyone suffers financial setbacks, even someone as successful as yourself. Tell us about a financial setback that you've experienced and how you managed to bounce back and how others can too. Well, I think I've had uh, actually my fair share of them. And let me tell you, they just get more complicated the more money you have. So the financial setbacks um, when I was younger were much smaller, but now, you know, in my early 30s, uh, they're more significant. And uh, there were a few times where I thought, oh my, oh my God, <laughs> what am I going to do after this? I'm a smart person. I just can't believe, you know, this particular deal or whatnot went sideways. And, you know, a few of them, uh, a few of them that I'll mention, uh, one in particular was uh, my publisher went bankrupt and still owed me a lot of money. And this was my first publisher. And that was, that was pretty devastating. Not only did my books get removed from the shelves because there was no further distribution, but there was financial loss for me. And uh, that took me a little while to get my mind in the right place, knowing that, um, you know, I would be able to recover from that. And then second to that, 
um, getting my money in the right place. So knowing what I needed to focus on going forward. So one of the things with financial setbacks is half of them um, aren't your fault. And then the other half can and often are a product of being in a bad position, maybe because you weren't prepared or um, maybe because uh, you weren't thinking far enough ahead. I I mentioned the book publisher. That was obviously not my fault. Um, But one of them that was my fault was when I first started my business and I made some investments in uh, learning technology that I, I really thought were sound investments. And they turned out not to be, but those investments were chosen because I didn't, well, I, I wanted to have that component of my business, but I didn't do enough work on them. So truly not a great situation. Um, but like I mentioned, some setbacks are preventable and others are not. Great. That's a great way to put it. Now, earlier you mentioned uh, that millennials enjoy going out to restaurants and traveling, but they're also struggling to save, but you're not. How can others become more money conscious like you? Well, I I mean, I really like restaurants and travel, (laughs) Um, but I have that component of my budget in its rightful place. So it's always after I've tucked away the money that I needed to for saving. So the way I manage my money is I like to think proactively about the month ahead rather than reactively um, beating myself up over what happened the previous month. So that's the first difference. The second is that um, I make saving happen every single week, if not every single day. So I am way more frequent with my saving uh, than I think the average person. And I take smaller amounts and tuck those away more frequently. Then the rest is, you know, gravy. I can do what I want with it. So the way I like to approach the leftovers is I ask myself, do I love this experience or this thing that I'm spending money on? And if I can genuinely answer that I like love doing that thing that I'm spending money on, then it's okay. But if I can't answer very wholeheartedly that that expense makes me truly happy, then I probably shouldn't be doing it. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, I teach fitness classes because I am super passionate about um, not only financial wellness, but physical wellness as well. And so I often invest my money into um, classes or learning that helps me be better at my physical fitness. And that's something that I love. So I don't mind spending my money on it. But if a friend wants to go out to a restaurant that I'm mediocre on, I, I often counter with another suggestion, like, why don't you come over here to my home and I will cook? Um, because if I don't love that, And if my friend doesn't genuinely love that, then I don't spend my money on it. So I base my budget on the things that I love and I put savings at the very top because I love myself enough to save. Um, And that's where I think things break for a lot of people. They don't realize that saving for your future is an act of love for yourself. 
That's a great way to look at it. And on the topic of savings, coming up with a down payment can be tough, especially with the high cost of living. What tips can you offer for those struggling to save a down payment for a property? So if you're in a major center, obviously you're going to need a bigger down payment. First off, automating your savings is going to be key. So making sure you have a high interest savings account or GIC that you're putting your down payment into on a regular basis. So I recommend weekly, at least weekly uh, for that saving. Part two though is um, big trades need to be made. This is the thing that I think millennials, including myself, struggle with. When you want something as big as a house, you have to trade something really big for it. So this can often mean getting rid of a car, selling things that you own, and you know, cashing in on you know, cashing in on things like uh, if you had been sitting on Canada savings bonds from your grandmother from 15 years ago, that all needs to be added to the down payment pool. But in all honesty, for young people, if it's their first home in an expensive market, uh, you should really ask your parents. Uh, for help and see if they want to participate in help su- helping to support you in um, saving for the down payment. It's very, very hard to do. Down payments are now, you know, $150,000 for a lot of young people, um, maybe a hundred thousand. That's huge. It's huge, huge amounts of money and um, it's going to take years. So patience, parents and paring down the budget so that you can afford to do it. Yeah, the bank of mom and dad certainly comes in handy for that if they're generous enough to help you. It sure does, yep. Great. So a trend is for single millennials to buy their first property on their own, typically a condo. What are some common mistakes to avoid when purchasing your first property? Buying too much. (laughs) So paying too much. So as a single person uh, as a single source of income, the challenge here is that if you lose that source of income, you can't afford the house. Whereas if it's a dual income household, you could rely on one person's income to temporarily cover the financial load while the other person looks for work. So when I talk to a lot of single millennials, I really stress the importance of having a robust emergency fund that could cover minimum three full months of payments for that property as well as like living expenses. So if everything comes to $5,000 each month, that means a a emergency fund of $15,000. If things are, you know, $2,500 a month, that means an emergency fund of $7,500. So essentially Overbuying is probably the biggest mistake. So uh, I see a lot of of millennials now buying less, and that's a good sign. The other thing is that um, like don't follow those mortgage calculators. You can get approved for far more than you should. And I am a huge proponent of like take that mortgage calculator. And then put the output of it. So if the payment says that you're going to be on the hook for $2,000 per month, you need to take that amount of money and put it into your actual budget. And then you build a budget based on what you know. Don't base it on just 
the calculator. You need to take the entire picture into account. So I always encourage our clients to have a today budget and then a uh, future homeowner budget that is fully fleshed out with every aspect of every expense that they could expect. And then if the budget says like your green light go, you do not have this running in the red or negative balances each month, then you're probably good. That's some great advice, Leslie Ann. You're a fan of side hustle. Can you tell us how side hustle has helped you reach important financial milestones like home ownership and how can others develop their own side hustle? It's a big question because side hustle has a lot to do with like what the side hustle is. (laughs) So um, side hustle obviously is like, working at other things uh, while you have your day job and generating another source of income. This can be from another job, from freelance work. It could also be from, you know, cash flow from investments and, and whatnot. I obviously like I teach fitness classes, not for the money because it's not for the money. It's about for myself, like making sure that that part of my life is, is healthy and happy. But also I figured I was going to the gym every single day anyways, I might as well get paid for it. But that's a very small side hustle. I see a lot of people get into like freelance work. For example, one of our clients is, you know, a a fitness coach. And I love that because that's, you know, between let's say two and $800 a month in extra cash flow from doing something that that person loves to do. Those are, you know, there's freelance work and there's also people that have like second jobs or full on side businesses. The idea here is that your side hustle makes you money and you use that money to accomplish major goals in your life, uh, like building up a down payment, saving, let's say, for parental leave or um, boosting your TFSA contributions. I'm a huge fan of it. I've never not had multiple sources of income. I have money coming in from all over the place because I can. And when I'm out doing things, I'm often asking myself, like, is this a good business idea? Is this something that I can make money at? And I'm not afraid to try it. I I like it. But side hustle takes time and energy and there's no way around it. If you want extra money, you either got to upgrade your job or upgrade your income so that you have way more money coming in the door. And uh, that requires work. I don't know anybody in my community of entrepreneurs that doesn't put in a 60 to 90 hour work week. I, I would say that that's, you know, there's lots of theories that you should work less and make more. I agree that's the ideal, but it's very rare. Great. So in your latest book, The Modern Couples Money Guide, it focuses on couples and money. What advice can you offer to couples considering buying their first property together? I'm a big proponent of joint banking, and I think that couples should have at least a year of joint banking and joint financial decision making under their belt before they buy a property. That's because when you join your banking and you make decisions together often, you will see the other person's value system and you will be able to determine if you're aligned. Uh, But also if there are some challenges, you will want to work that through before you buy a property together. 
properties are obviously one of the biggest financial commitments that a couple can make um, to themselves and to each other. So be prepared, be prepared for that. So I also am a huge fan of joint banking for the purposes of transparency um, so that the couple can see exactly what's going into the accounts and going out of the accounts each month. Um, from that though, building out a budget that the two of them agree to. And again, I go back to that like today budget and future homeowner budget. So you want to have both of those like have mastered the today budget, but also have a real clear plan of how you're going to manage your budget in the future um, when you're a homeowner. And then the last uh, piece of advice for couples, and it doesn't matter whether you're buying a home or not. If you talk about money, it will help. If you don't talk about money, it will not help. And it will not help not only your finances, but it will not help the connection that you have with your partner because money is reflection of like deeply, deeply rooted values. And so the more you talk about it, the more you will understand and see the value system of your partner. And that's, that's absolutely critical and should be something before a house is bought or a child is brought into the world. But I guess maybe wait until the second date before asking for your potential <laughs> partner to be a credit score. You know, I think I brought up money on my first date. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I think like really within you know, three dates, you should have a very clear idea of whether or not you are dating a spender or a saver. And if you are dating a spender who is driving a Range Rover and that you know that they are only making $50,000 a year, there's only two ways that that's happening. It's happening because of debt or it's happening because they have some other source of income that they're not telling you about. Both of which you should try to get to the bottom of before you make a commitment. That's, that's great advice. So Leslie Ann, it's been great having you on the show today. Before I let you go, is there anything of interest that you're working on that you'd like to share with our listeners? I, you know, I, it's, a, it's a great question. I'm always working on stuff. Like I said, I've got many side hustles on the go, but our team at Mevest is um, you know, excited. We're growing our money coaching business. Our specialty is, of course, with our millennial clients. And so uh, that is something that gets all of us excited every day, including myself. Um, so that's, you know, that's where my heart and passion is. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Burn Your Mortgage podcast. Besides being a podcast host and money coach, I'm also a licensed mortgage broker. If you or anyone you know, family, friends, coworkers, or neighbors could ever use any unbiased mortgage advice or a second opinion, feel free to reach out. You can reach me by email at seancooperwriter at gmail.com or you can call or text me at 647 867-3711. Also, be sure to head on over to www.seancooperwriter.com and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. As a small token of my appreciation, you'll be able to download my 
ultimate mortgage checklist on choosing the perfect mortgage. You can also sign up for a free one-on-one 15-minute money coaching consultation with yours truly. I look forward to hearing from you and helping you burn your mortgage sooner too. Once again, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating. Until next time, happy mortgage burning. (laughs) 